Welcome to Secondhand Stories. I'm your host, Jim Zabo. Thanks as always for choosing to slow down and listen up with us. First up, I want to apologize. I said we'd be starting this episode a little differently than normal, but that experiment got pushed back until the next episode. I felt like what we wanted to do didn't really fit with today's episode as well as I thought it would originally, so we're going to push it back. Today's episode, as I told you about at the end of last episode, is all about mothers, because as I'm sure you know, Mother's Day is coming up very soon. First up, we have A Meandering Blue by Amy Ballard. Amy is a high school teacher and parent of three, so it's tough for her to find time to write. Nevertheless, over Christmas break this year, she gathered 17 of her poems into a chapbook called Landlocked, which she then published. It's about growing up in Maine and moving to Idaho as an adult. Maine, of course, is a coastal state, while Idaho is landlocked. She's also had to come to terms with the fact that there isn't much rain where she now lives. Maybe that's why she wrote A Meandering Blue. Her story is about a mid-century woman and her tween son, and the way her expected baby will certainly change their mother-son dynamic. But it's also about Maine and water. She hopes listeners will visit her online at www.amyballard.com. She's also on Facebook as Christian Teacher Public School and on Goodreads as author Amy Ballard. Here's Amy reading her story, A Meandering Blue. It was that Thursday at the end of August when school had begun for Harry, but not for John. Alice had fallen asleep reading the new Brit-lit teacher manual her husband had left on the table after supper, and it had given her vivid dreams of Anglo-Saxon thanes plying the oars of a longboat in a gale. With a sea monster behind and rocky cliffs before, the thanes' journey had become a nightmare, and she awoke in cold sweats. But then, being pregnant, neither the dream nor the sweats surprised her. Harry was up, collecting his boxers and socks to lay out in the bathroom. I'm looking forward to a good shower when we get home, he said under his breath. Here at the cottage, it was the claw-footed tub or nothing. John wouldn't even take a bath. His daily plunge in the lake was good enough for him. Alice rolled out of bed and squeezed past Harry to the bathroom. A few moments later, she put on her flowered robe and some lipstick before tiptoeing past John's room and down the narrow stair. She would send Harry off with breakfast and a good box lunch, chicken left over from last night's picnic on the dock. Only when he was finishing his coffee did she lower herself, slowly, onto the war-era sofa with bad springs. They ought to have the owners replace it. Humming along with a portable radio, she picked up the pile of baby quilt patterns Mrs. Briggs had brought over. Now Harry breezed in, stooped to kiss her goodbye. His lips smudged off some of her lipstick, so she licked the corner of her handkerchief and made him presentable again. It's just a work day, he said. No meetings. I should be back by five. It was a long drive to his school from the lake, over an hour. Don't worry about me. Baby's happy, so I'm happy. He took his hat and summer overcoat from their hooks by the door. If anything happens, don't send for me first. Have John run for Dr. Eisen. He knows their cottage. We're still three weeks away from baby day, she said. It's going to be born at home, with my own midwife attending. Just don't overdo the packing. Make John do the heavy lifting. 
Then he was gone, and she repeated the word, packing, to herself. There was not so much left to do. The sporting tackle, John's creative comic books, and their other amusements waited in an orderly heap on the screened porch, along with the old green train case that held her things for the hospital. She would clean the kitchen and box up the non-perishables tomorrow. Today, she would spruce up the upstairs and clean the bathroom, if she could get off the couch. She shuffled through the quilt patterns again, looking for a morning glory applique that had caught her eye yesterday. So intricate, with three-dimensional folds. She doubted she and Aunt Marion could complete it by the time the baby was born. Still, it was pleasant to think about the fabrics she would use. Scraps of this dress and that apron. Still favoring a girl. Maybe they should put off making the quilt until they knew the sex of the baby. But she would be so tired then. She had not forgotten the sleepless nights with a nursing baby. The stairs creaked. John appeared, hair sticking up in the back where he had slept on it. He was ten that summer, a sailor like President Kennedy, and as tan as a lifeguard. Childishly, though, he curled up beside her on the sofa, and uninvited, placed his hand on her swollen stomach to feel his little sibling kick. He was not disappointed. The sweet smile Alice loved came over his face, and she kissed the brown nest of hair that cried for a comb. The moment was gone when John remembered his stomach. What's for breakfast? You're having Cheerios. Serving one sumptuous breakfast had done her in. The boy bounded to the kitchen, inexplicably energized. She heard cereal pour, the refrigerator open, the milk bottle clink against the bowl. Big plans for today, she called. Mmm, well, if you'll let me. John reappeared, taking for granted that she would allow him to eat in the living room now that his father was out of the house. I want to take the canoe out. All of June and July and half of August, he had bummed rides on the sailboats of the families in the neighboring cottages. But since those families had left for the season, his options were limited. It was row or paddle. Why wouldn't I let you take the canoe? Alice handed him her handkerchief for his milk mustache. Dad said I'm the man of the house until school starts, in case anyone gets snake bit or the baby comes early. Well, you don't have to worry about that. Maybe I'll take my work bag down to the dock and you can keep an eye on me with your binoculars. She followed him down the dusty path to the dock where the red canoe was tied. Watching him prepare to launch, she was overcome with the desire to go with him. Her old adventurous self swimming up through layers of marriage and motherhood and pregnancy, summoning her to explore unknown shores where no pregnant woman had gone before. Johnny, wait. She kicked off her sandals and tossed her work bag in the grass nearby. I'm coming too, he hesitated. Mom, there's, there's no way Dad would want you going out in the canoe. Then he said what he shouldn't have said. We'll capsize. She bit her lip, wanting to cry, but laughing. Of course you're right. He said, we could try the rowboat. She didn't know why she wanted this. Adventure seemed less alluring now that her Viking longboat had been reduced to the old rowboat that came with the cabin. 
Maybe she wanted to go with John because they were leaving the lake in two days, or because the summer was ending. She could smell fall in the air, even if the leaves were barely tinged with red. It had something to do with John. His sweetness, his boyishness. How long would he want his mother tagging along? And soon, a new baby would change everything for him. He would be a good big brother, probably spoil the baby worse than she and Harry would. But she simply would not have as much time for him. Even with John's help, it took an absurdly long time for her to enter the boat and get settled, favorite quilt patterns still in hand. She was grateful that most of their neighbors had left. Mrs. Briggs next door and Dr. and Mrs. Eisen were among the few who remained. The morning sun glared off the water, and Alice squinted despite the aviator's sunglasses she had taken from Harry's tackle box. John shoved off from the dock with one great push of an oar, then maneuvered the boat around and began rowing toward the middle of the lake. Of course this was a good decision, the last outing of the summer. But she clutched the pattern unsteadily. It was silly to worry. She had plenty of room in the stern among the brown life vests that might be veterans of the Great War. Breathe. Do you miss your friends? she asked, as if John were a member of her sewing club come for tea. Her voice quavered from nausea or because she did not want to think about going home. John tilted his head and looked away as if to say, not much. He was rowing in a smooth rhythm now, taking them parallel to the shore and past their cottage. Soon they would be in the marshy area, where the water lilies had bloomed earlier in the summer. This is where I caught that fish Tuesday, John said relaxing his arms and allowing the boat to glide. She smiled. It was a tasty one. You're a regular Ernest Hemingway. Who? Never mind. He'll wait. The wind bucked suddenly, ruffling her hair and bringing out goosebumps on her arms. Sunny with a cool breeze. That was Maine at summer's decline. She tucked the tent that was her maternity sundress tighter around her legs. With the next gust, she hugged herself and succumbed to shivers. Should have brought a jacket. Would you like to go back? John asked. She would not like to go back, but she was cold and there was still the cleaning and packing to do. I suppose so, she said. I guess I'm not much of a sailor these days. As they came about, the wind hit her hard in the face like a pillow and she gasped, losing hold of Mrs. Briggs's pattern. It sailed ten feet up before falling flat on the surface of the lake and floating, lazy as a wayward raft. John saw it happen. A few strokes of the oar, and they were near it. It must not sink. Mrs. Briggs might not mind, but this was going to be the baby's quilt. Alice would never be able to recreate the tricky pattern from memory. She stretched her hand toward the paper, grasped it, and tumbled in. Blood rushed to her head as the cold water surged around her. The first thought that pierced her was the folly of not wearing life vests. Now John would jump in after her. Yes, there he was. She could feel and hear the water taking him in. And he would be in danger, too. She held her breath, willing herself to relax. There was all the time in the world 
she had not even begun rising. Her pelvis cramped, and she thought at last of the one truly in danger, baby. Alice began to kick, ears popping, hair streaming. She was rising at last. John grasped the tie at the back of her dress and pulled. At the same time, her face broke the surface, and she sputtered, shaking her head to free the water from her ears. She could not open her eyes. John guided her hand to the side of the boat, and she hung there, breathing, breathing deliberately, as if she had never taken breath before. Mom, are you okay? She heard the words. She strained to feel, to hear, to see her baby. Was this pain in her middle the result of her fall? Was it labor? Or was something wrong? Mom! Eyes open, sun glaring, the aviator's gone. Finally, she focused through the blur. John hung from the side of the rowboat, head against the side for support, eyes full of concern, but not fear. She blinked back the tears, wishing to be as brave as he. Can you get me to shore? He seemed to understand that she would not be able to climb back into the boat. Can you hold on? How had they gotten so far from land? I'll have to, won't I? The pain was easing a little. Her teeth chattered like castanets. Move around to the stern. You'll have an easier time. John hoisted himself into the boat and scooped up a life vest. Put this on, he said, placing the vest over her head. She felt ungainly as a mama duck in the park that had eaten too many crusts. The dock looked miles away, though of course it couldn't be true. Fingers already numb, eyes clamped shut, she held on for dear life, for dear lives. There was a tiny kick within her and she breathed easier. A moment later, the pain began again. John rode so slowly, and yet she longed to tell him to stop. Maybe that would make the pain go away. Contractions came and went. She peered through sweat drops into the water, where her shadow and the boats blocked the glinting sun and created a lens on the world below. A school of fish passing under her twisted in unison, a braid of speckled brown with corpse eyes indifferent to her pain. One fish, with a dimple in its side, sneered, A bit far afield this morning, aren't we? The pain came again, and she drew her knees forward against the wake, but the pain did not lessen. Her arms would give out soon. Any moment, her fingers would slap into the water, and she would breathe water and drown. She closed her eyes to make the staring fish disappear, and she prayed. Would God hear? She had, after all, been foolish setting out in a rowboat with her baby's life in her hands. Her arms shook now. She could not stop them. Would God hear? The boat surged ahead. A push from heaven, a pull from shore. She drew herself up as far as she could. Inches, enough to see an Anglo-Saxon warrior at the oars. Yellow locks streamed in the breeze, and the thane's arms, firm and round as tumbled boulders, pulled mightily at the oars. She lowered herself again, peered into the water. There was that dimpled fish, wearing Harry's aviators, and tisking at her with its puckered mouth. Her lipstick was smeared on its lips. 
When her hands gave out, she rolled over gracelessly, like a molded ice ring in a bowl of punch, arms flailing, feet thrashing. Later, when she woke up and brushed the baby's downy face with her cheek, she thought for a moment she had given birth in the shallow water by the dock. Then she remembered the linoleum in the cottage kitchen, the whitewashed bead boards of the ceiling, the floral medallion wallpaper. Alice had memorized them all while Mrs. Eisen spoke in hushed, even tones, and she pushed the baby into the world. She had let herself scream. It was her second baby, and she was thirty-two now, and there would be no trophy for not screaming. Harry was still at school. What was taking him so long? A new creature, their child, was waiting to meet him. Mrs. Eisen bustled in, humming along with the song streaming from the radio in the kitchen. Oh, you're awake! Alice smiled deliriously. I can't remember. Have I named the baby? Not that you mentioned, Mrs. Eisen said. I like flower names. For a boy? Oh, a boy. She did not recall hearing that announcement from the kitchen linoleum. Do you think Harry would let me call him Moses? Because he was drawn out of the water like the prophet? Something like that. Only Harry doesn't need to know the whole story. He'd scold me. Mrs. Eisen leaned over to collect the baby. Perhaps you'd prefer Henry Jr. No. Where's John? A tender look swept Mrs. Eisen's face as she took the baby from her arms. The Eisens had no children. He's at the end of the cottage road, watching for his father. Baby opened his eyes, worked his lips into an O, and burped. Mrs. Eisen's usually firm mouth twitched as if it would smile. Then she was business again. You know, that boy was completely out of breath when he came to fetch me. He's worked almost as hard as you have to bring this little one into the world. You're joking, right? Alice sighed. I'll lay the baby down, and then let's get you upstairs before Harry comes home. I've got the bed all ready for you. You're a good nurse for not being a nurse. I've had a good bit of training. This is not the first baby I've delivered. Alice sat up carefully on the old couch. I'm so glad you didn't go with Dr. Eisen to that picnic. I could be dead right now. Mrs. Eisen smiled modestly. That Boy Scout of yours would have known what to do. When Mrs. Eisen had gone home, Harry and John burst into the bedroom and woke the baby up. Let's name him George, John begged. Harry kept saying, I can't believe it, and laughing to himself. Had John told his father about their voyage? But it would be all right now. They were all safe and sound. The quilt she made was not a floral applique or any other sort of baby quilt, but a blanket for her older son. The patches were of soft old checkered shirts and his cowboy pajamas that had worn out and here and there something of Harry's or her own. The backing was of the thickest cotton flannel she could buy, in a meandering blue stripe that reminded her of the sky and the water on a day in Maine at the end of summer.
A quick note before we begin our second story, be sure to stick around to the end of the episode where, for the second time in Secondhand Stories history, I'll reveal what our next episode will be about, because I've already planned it. I'll do this after the credits, so please stick around if you're interested in knowing what we'll bring to you next time. I'm going to try to make this a regular thing, but we'll see. Next up, we have Carol Glasser Langell's story, Boy. Carol is the author of two collections of short stories and four books of poetry. Her favorite thing is listening to stories read on the internet. Carol's story, Boy. The boy put down the book he was reading and opened the refrigerator again. He knew what he'd find. Sour milk, stale white bread in an open package, the last scrapings of raspberry jam, and three oranges that kept growing harder and smaller, shriveling in their tough skins. He'd been in this house three months, and for the last two he'd been thinking about food all the time, wanting one of his mother's homemade pizzas. Not that he wanted to be back living with her. He looked out the window at the thick grasses that bordered the stream by the house. There was so much life in that wild grass, so much energy shivering as the wind blew. He would turn 16 in December. He'd be able to drive soon. But now, he felt like a prisoner. Perhaps he would walk down the road to the quick mart and pick up some salami and a loaf of bread. Three months ago, at the end of August, when he called his father long distance and said he wanted to live with him, his father had said, sure, I'll pick you up tonight. His mother agreed it would be the best thing. She said their arguments were what happened between most teenage boys and their mothers. Teenagers smoked, they missed school, they smuggled girlfriends into their rooms. Maybe living with his father would get him on track. His father lived in another province in a house by the ocean. Even now, though he'd been here three months, the boy would sprint down the road to the beach after getting off the school bus and walk along the rocks to look out at the enormous rocking water. It was blue, yes, but not just one blue, and there were other colors mixed in, greens and orange and brown. Some days the wind brushed the surface of the ocean lightly, as if ripples were covered in charcoal blue coal dust, and the wind was raking the dust over and over to one side. The only person who was against this adjustment in living arrangements was the father's new wife. We aren't ready for a teenager, she'd said. They just had a baby themselves, and she complained she had to take care of the infant mostly on her own. His father was out surveying his land, or planting and trimming trees, or buying used cars for a business he and his friend had started. His father was always busy, the wife often angry. That's how it seemed to the boy. How will you have time for this, son, he overheard her say, when you don't even have time for us. The boy guessed she was annoyed because she hadn't been consulted. Where will he sleep? On the couch? She asked as he lay, in fact, downstairs on the very couch she was talking about, trying to sleep. You worry too much, his father said. Let me tell you again how much I love you, he said to his wife. Then the boy didn't hear a thing until his father's sleepy voice said softly, The boy will be fine. He'll help with the baby. The wife came downstairs after this discussion, and the boy could sense her looking at him. He willed himself to appear as harmless as possible. Tomorrow he would wash his long, greasy hair. He'd wear jeans that weren't ripped. He heard the wife sigh. She'd been told he'd be an asset, but he noticed that when he did help, she seemed surprised. She'd go out in the evenings with her friends, and he'd stay home and babysit. He'd feed the baby a bottle, change diapers, and put the baby back into his crib, rubbing his back until the baby fell asleep, 
He wanted to be useful. He wanted to stay in this house, where he could hear the wind tensing through the long grass, where he could walk down the road and look out at the ocean. He wanted to play cards with his father, and trim trees with him, and go with him to look at used cars. When his father had left his mother, the boy was not quite seven, and only vaguely remembered him. His mother had taken him up north soon after, where she taught on a native reserve. Living in the north turned out to be even worse than he'd anticipated. Brutal, even. His blue eyes and pale skin seemed to be an irritant to the native dark-skinned, dark-eyed kids. The older you were, the more often you were beat up, and by the time he was twelve, he would get pounded several times a week, three or four ganging up on him at a time. He and his mother had been there three years before she decided to move back to the Maritimes. Even after they returned, his father never called or came to visit. Your father's like a boy himself, and he's afraid you'll reject him, his mother said. How could his father think that? He'd wanted his father to call for so long that when he finally did, to tell him he'd married again, and then added, I'm coming by tomorrow to see you. The boy was so excited he could hardly sleep. He wondered if it was the new wife who had urged his father to visit. Now that he actually lived with his father, he was determined they wouldn't be separated again. A few weeks after the boy moved in, the wife had a job interview in the city, and the boy's father couldn't drive her. I don't know my way around, she complained to her husband. I need your help. The boy will help, her husband said. I'll draw a map and write out directions. The day of the interview, the boy stayed home from school and rode in the car with his father's wife. He held the map and directions in one hand and leaned the other hand over the back seat, turning to pat the baby from time to time and put a pacifier in the baby's mouth when he started to cry. The wife kept asking the boy what the last sign said and what time it was as she white-knuckled the steering wheel. All of a sudden, she shouted, There's a sign for exit one, and we were supposed to get off at exit two. Her eyes narrowed to slits. I can't be late for this appointment, she said. She looked like she was going to cry. Look on the map, she cried, her voice shaky, and when her eyes shifted briefly from the road to the boy again, she shouted, What do we do? The boy was surprised to be yelled at. His mother knew how to read a map. She knew how to follow directions and figure out where she was going. This woman was fully grown, the mother of a baby, but she didn't seem to be able to do the simplest things. Why had his father married her? I don't know what to do, the boy said. Then he said, under his breath, but still defiant, I'm only fifteen. The wife kept driving and didn't look in his direction. After a few minutes, she said, it's not your fault. But she was wrong. Her problems were his fault, he knew. His father's problems were his fault too, though he wasn't sure why. Fifteen years old or not, it was obvious he had failed to deliver what was expected of him. All the misery he and everyone felt was his fault. And then he saw, just ahead, the ramp she was supposed to take, and which read Exit 2. She saw it too, and got off where she'd intended. Evidently, road signs gave advanced warning, miles ahead. Thanks for your help, she said, relieved now that she knew where she was going but her words sounded hollow to him. He hadn't left his home and school and whatever friends he had to spend time with her. It wasn't her approval he craved. 
Lately, she and his father were arguing all the time. When the father made plans to go with his buddy to an antique car convention for four days, the wife complained. It'll be too hard for me to be alone with the new baby and your teenage son. She said this loud enough for the boy to hear, though he was downstairs, and they were talking upstairs behind closed doors in their bedroom. She was angry that his father had lost his job, and they didn't have any money to finish the house, which was only half completed. She wanted a mattress in the baby's room, so she could lie down and sing the baby to sleep. Surely they could get a mattress somewhere, she said. Yes, they had a rocking chair, but she liked to lie down when she was with the baby. All you do is lie down, his father had shouted. But he ended up telling his buddy he couldn't go with him to look at antique cars. When his father found the days too routine, he'd give a party to liven things up. These were the worst, she'd said, and she didn't want to put up with them. He would invite people over, and they would stay late into the night, and she'd be bone-tired from nursing and tending the baby, and still the parties would go on and on. During the last bash, the boy saw her come to the head of the steps and ask the people downstairs, all his father's drinking buddies, to leave. I need to get some sleep, she'd said. And they did leave. But then his father had stormed up the stairs and shouted, You will not tell my friends they have to go. Just for that, I'll keep you up all night. He'd heard noise in their bedroom, and then their door opened and slammed shut. He saw the wife walk down the steps, a sheet wrapped around her. She went into the baby's room and shut the door behind her. But there was only a crib and rocking chair in that room. He guessed she slept upright in the rocking chair. It wasn't long after that that she left the note on the table. It was as if he were living in some TV soap opera. He'd gone out with his father to help bring back beer and wine and soda for a party his father was intending to have. It had been the boy's job to rake the lawn and arrange tables and chairs in front of the deck. The trip to the liquor store with his dad was a reward for a job well done. His father had been in a good mood, and the boy was glad to spend some time with him. When they returned, the wife and baby were gone, and there was a note on the kitchen table addressed to his father, which read, Don't try to find us. You have to decide whether you want us back. Things can't go on like this. The boy wasn't sorry she'd gone. She wasn't a good cook. He had to agree with his father. She spent most of her time sleeping, intending the baby. The night he read the note, his father packed all his wife's things into two plastic garbage bags and dragged them into the shed. He put her books into a box and hauled them to the shed as well. The night after that, he held the party he had planned the week before. Where's your wife? friends asked, and he'd said, She's out, and they didn't inquire further. There was a woman at the party his father talked to, a tall woman with red hair. The boy heard him tell her, My wife left. She's not coming back. The woman hung around him the rest of the evening. After the party, his father got drunk several nights in a row. The boy was patient. He knew his father wouldn't stay drunk forever. Eventually, he would sober up and things would get back to normal. They'd start spending time together again. On the second drunk night, his father cried and said he missed his wife and that she shouldn't have left. She didn't know the first thing about marriage. Things like this happened all the time. Didn't she understand they could work this out? Eventually, his father came to his senses. He stopped drinking, 
He and the boy cleaned the house together. The boy was relaxing and drinking a Coke when he heard his father call the woman from the party. He went to visit her in the city that night, and he stayed two days. When his father came home, it was a Monday afternoon, and the boy had just gotten back from school. His father taught him to play poker, and they played until almost midnight. The next night, his father visited the woman again, and this time, he stayed two weeks. When there was only bread and jam left in the fridge, he thought he should call his mother and tell her how things were. But he knew his mother would drive down and insist he come back home. He hadn't told her, when she'd call each week, that his father was never around. The next time she called, he thought he'd let her know. But that day, his father came by with groceries, milk, steak, potatoes, bread, salami, eggs, cereal. You know how to fry steak, don't you? His father asked. The boy had never cooked, but how hard could it be? You like being on your own, don't you? His father smiled. What could he say? His father had a two-day stubble and was wearing a pair of dirty overalls and a ripped sweater. His father was in no condition to hang out with him, he knew. Before his father left that night, he handed the boy two $20 bills. Buy yourself lunches, he said. One day, the wife came by in the middle of the afternoon to pick up her stuff. The boy told her that her things were in the shed. He came out and walked beside her as she opened the shed door and looked at the two garbage bags on the muddy floor. He saw that her books, piled in a box, were warped with mildew. When she picked one up and opened it, he could see a black growth covering the pages, as if some malignancy had attached itself to the words. He went back into the house and left her in the shed to look through her things alone. She'd come with a friend who was sitting in the truck, and now the boy saw, from the living room window, that the man had gotten out and was helping her carry a large old chair from the shed to the truck. This chair, and a couch, was being stored in the shed until the boy's father could put down a pine floor in the living room. When his father's wife and the friend had taken the chair halfway down the path, the boy came out and stood in front of them. That's not yours, he said. He was proud to be guarding his father's things. Your stuff is in the garbage bags. He would not let them pass. Let's leave the chair and go, the friend said. A few days later, when the wife called to see if some of her books were still in the house, the husband answered. So you were trying to steal the chair, were you? He laughed. I have a good guard here, as you found out, he said. When his father got off the phone, he took the boy out for Digby clams and chips. The father made the boy take his school books along to the restaurant, and over dinner, insisted on going over the recent math assignment. The boy couldn't follow what his father was doing with the equations, but pretended he understood. Afterwards, his father asked what he wanted to do, and the boy said he wanted to get drunk. He'd never gotten drunk before. So later that night, the father bought a case of beer, and he and the boy stayed up drinking. The boy got sick, and didn't rise the next day until noon. When he went to the kitchen to make coffee, he read the note his father had left on a piece of loose-leaf paper torn from his binder. Congratulations. Now you know what it's like to have a hangover. Underneath the note was a $50 bill. A few days later, his father called to ask how he did on his math test. I did okay, he said. In fact, he'd missed the test. 
It was scheduled for the day he was too sick to go in. What's okay? his father asked. Eighty-six. Eighty-six is good, his father said. Then he gave the boy the phone number of the red-headed woman who'd been at the party and at whose house he was staying. Now his father rarely came home, except to drop off money. The boy started staying home from school, too. He couldn't get up in time to catch the bus. In December, his mother called and said she wanted to take him out for his birthday. The boy's father called that week, and the boy said his mother was coming by. That's good, his father said. She should come by for your birthday. The boy expected his father to show up, too, but the day of his birthday, only his mother drove down. She didn't know where the good restaurants were, and they ended up eating fish that was crispy on the outside, but slimy inside, and cold with oily chips in a restaurant where the toilet didn't even flush. His mother made a face as she bit into the fish, and said they should go back to his father's place, and she'd make homemade pizza and a birthday cake. That night, she slept in a sleeping bag in front of the wood stove on a mat she'd brought with her. It was too late for her to drive all the way home. Are you alone most of the time? she asked. Come back with me, she said. At least you could spend time with your friends. But he didn't want to go home. What friends would he hang out with? He'd been happy to get away. He couldn't imagine anything being better if he returned. His mother left him money. She started to call regularly. She said she wanted him to finish the year in his old school. When she knew she couldn't convince him, she said she'd mail him a clock radio to wake him in the morning. I don't want you to miss any more classes. Okay, he said. Are you failing French? He used to do so well in French, she said, but he didn't answer. It wasn't that he didn't see his father at all. His father would come by for a few hours, make phone calls, do errands. He'd buy groceries, and the boy would put them away, and afterwards they'd play cards. On Valentine's Day, when the boy came home from school, there was a small heart-shaped box of chocolates on the table. Inside were four small chocolates, a plain one, a chocolate-covered strawberry, a nougat, and a chocolate-covered nut. He picked up the handwritten card, folded beside the box. I'll be home later tonight to help you eat these, it read. The boy had to laugh. The box was so small, only his father would joke like that. He thought he'd surprise his father by not even opening the box again and leaving the chocolates untouched. But his father didn't come by that night, and the next morning, the boy ate the candies for breakfast. The following Monday, his father was home when the boy returned from school. They played chess, and his father cheated. They played another game, and when the boy won, his father got angry and threw the chessboard into the wood stove. The boy's father was home the following day, too, and took the boy with him to trim Christmas trees. Then, the father's girlfriend called. Yes, he'd be coming back soon, he told her. Did she want him to pick up food on the way? And then he was gone. One day, his father showed up at school, and the boy was called out of class. As they walked to the car, his father said, no one should spend a beautiful day like this cooped up in class. It took an hour to drive to the ski resort, and his father rented skis for them both and poles and a helmet. The boy had forgotten to wear gloves that day, but his father wasn't annoyed. He bought him the most expensive gloves in the shop. They skied for five hours, and the boy felt he could ski for another five. 
He loved the exhilaration, edged with fear, as he raced down hills. And then, all of a sudden, he was ravenous. His father wanted to ski one more hill, so he skied too, though by then he was too numb to enjoy it. He was amazed the old man had even more energy than he did. When they finally went into the restaurant, the boy wolfed down two hamburgers and a plate of fries and a large chocolate milk. On the way home, he could barely keep his eyes open. It had been a great day. When his father almost fell asleep at the wheel, the boy perked up and talked to him the whole way back. His father didn't come home often, but the boy didn't mind spending time alone, he told himself. He got into the habit of talking out loud when he was alone. But lately, there was a voice inside his head that would answer back. It freaked him out at first. He'd be sitting down, staring out the window in the living room, looking at the grass, which had turned yellow and heavy, sticking out of the snow. He would just be staring out the window, feeling sort of numb, and say, This sucks. But when he was quiet again, he'd hear a voice from deep inside him. Oddly enough, the voice was female. It would say, You're okay. You're lonely now, but you won't always be lonely. What the hell? The boy said, startled the first time he heard it. He jogged down to the quick mart and bought a candy bar, just to hear the voice of the man behind the counter. But after a while, he would deliberately sit quietly, listening to his breath, staring at the snow pressing against the bottom of the large glass sliding doors, waiting until he heard the voice again. If he was quiet long enough, the voice would emerge. It's okay, the voice assured him. Wait a minute, the boy said one day, addressing the voice directly. You're part of me, right? I mean, I'm not going crazy, am I? There was silence for what seemed like a long time, and then the voice said, Yes, I am part of you. There was more silence after that, a sweet, rich silence, and then the voice said, And we're part of everything. The words were like thunder, not so much in the boy's head, but in his heart. Later in his life, when he was grown, he would have the same conversation with this voice that had become such a comfort to him. By then he would feel, not that the voice was part of him, but that he was part of the voice, and this presence inside him was so much more powerful and knowledgeable than he was. He would be grateful to be part of something so enormous. That was years later. He could not then know, as a teenager, that in less than ten years he would move to Quebec, get married, and have children of his own, and become a licensed electrician. He would be promoted to the head of the firm, and men twice his age would follow his directions, in French. He would not know, as a teenager, that his mother would be diagnosed with cancer, and that before his third child was born, she would be dead. When he first learned his mother was ill, he didn't tell his father. He rarely spoke to his father anyway. He took time off work when his mother had chemo and stayed in her house for two weeks. He drove her to the hospital and cooked what food she could eat. One afternoon, he brought a cup of tea into her room and set it onto the table beside her bed. She turned away from him, looking out the window. I want to die at home, she said, her voice barely audible, but she knew he'd hurt her. He promised himself he would make sure she didn't spend her last days in a hospital. When he left, he arranged with the neighbor to look in on her. I'll be okay, his mother said. 
She seemed to be rallying, though when he hugged her, he felt her bones beneath her thin cotton shift. I'll call every day, he promised. If you don't call every other day, you'll hear from me, she growled and laughed at the same time. She managed for a while, but a few months later, the neighbor found her passed out in the hall next to the bathroom. She'd been unconscious for a day and a half, the doctor said. The cancer had spread to her brain, and she was in danger of losing consciousness at any time. It was lucky the neighbor had the key, but the neighbor couldn't move in and give his mother full-time care, and the boy couldn't take more time off from work. He knew he was failing her. He'd wake in the middle of the night in a cold sweat, and then he'd realize why. His mother had asked for so little over the years. He couldn't even give her this last request. When she finally passed away, he was at work, miles from her. He didn't tell his father that she died, or what day the funeral would be. After the burial, people gathered at his uncle's house and talked about his mother, how strong she was, how smart. The boy sighed. His infant daughter would never know how happy her grandmother had been to pick her up, dress her in the booties and sweater she'd knitted. Would his three-year-old son remember the picture books his granny had brought and read to him? How he had cried each time his granny had to go? He would tell his children that their grandmother made the best bread, the best pies. But would this only make them hungrier for something they would never taste? Later that afternoon, driving home, he pulled off at a coffee shop, near where he and his father had lived a decade earlier. He had two cups of coffee and a piece of chocolate cake. He felt the need to tell someone he was here, but he could not bear the thought of calling his father. He picked up the phone, dialed information, and found himself asking for the number of the woman who used to be his father's second wife. He knew she'd moved to a neighboring town, and the operator gave him the number listed. I'm so sorry to hear about your mother, she said. After a moment's silence, she said, Can you come for dinner? They ate roast chicken and broiled potatoes and salad on the old wooden table in the kitchen. Her teenage son was there, too. They all agreed it was hard to believe 14 years had passed since the boy had lived with them and babysat. She made apple pie for dessert and asked if he wanted ice cream with it. When she brought the coffee, he took out photos of his children. How beautiful they are, she said. I'd love to meet them. Maybe we'll bring them to visit. Later, when he said he had to leave, and when her son was in another room, she sat across from him and spoke quietly. I want to apologize for the time you came to live with your father and me. It was a difficult time for me then. I wasn't a very good host. I'm sorry, she said. I hope you can forgive me. The boy blanched in embarrassment. I'm okay now, he said, his eyes flitting across the table and resting on the crumpled napkins. I'm fine. I have a job, a family. He found himself mumbling, as he used to do when he was a teenager. He hated when he stumbled over words. Anyway, he said finally, it wasn't you. He looked up then, and for a moment, their eyes locked. When she smiled to him, he felt a pang of the old sadness he'd felt when he was 15 and sleeping on her couch, hoping he would get to spend time with his father. He was a man now. He had two children, would soon have three, and still, he couldn't bring himself to say the word father when speaking of his own. Him was the closest word he could muster. But why even say that? 
He couldn't remember the last time they'd spoken. Instead, he asked if he could use the phone, and called his wife, and told her where he was and when he'd be leaving, and how many hours he expected it would take him to get home. Thanks to Amy and Carol for sharing their stories with us today. Thanks as always to my co-producer Colleen Stewart. And thanks to you for choosing to slow down and listen up with us. If you like this show, which you must if you're still listening, we'd really appreciate it if you spread the word about us. You can do this by just telling a friend or family member about the show, writing us a review on iTunes, following us on social media, or posting about us on your own social media feeds. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks with more Secondhand Stories. Memorial Day is our next holiday on tap, and in our next episode, we're going to feature a few stories that deal with war and war-related themes. Two of the stories are written by veterans, and I think it's going to be a really good episode.